Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. Today's guest is Kate Forbes, who was the Finance Secretary under Nicola Sturgeon and stood to be leader of the SNP and First Minister and almost did it, narrowly pipped to the post by Hamza Youssef. We talk about that narrow defeat and what it means uh, and about the leadership campaign, which obviously caused um, a lot of fuss. We also just talk about... Uh, religious views and whether they're uh, or whether they should be given more weight than, say, a political view or any sort of opinion that anyone holds, and about a whole load of other stuff too about um, the Scottish Greens, about the coalition, about the changing uh, nature of British politics and up to the next election and how Labour are doing and what that means for Scotland and just in general, how do you convince people? that you're right. What should the SNP be doing to try and get a majority of Scottish people to agree with independence? And what would independence look like? And how broad uh, is the SNP as a church? And um, how many different opinions are there in there? And obviously, Kate offered a very different view of what Scottish nationalism is to that of Nicola Sturgeon and Hunter Yusuf. So there's a whole load of stuff in there, as well as some really funny personal stuff as well um, about what Kate's vices are. Um, so uh, this is a real treat of an interview. Um, I mean, uh, uh, just about to plug the Edinburgh channel, I just realised by the time you listen to this, it will be finished. So I'm doing the Leicester Square Theatre on the 15th of September uh, with my new stand-up show, Inside Number 10, which I've debuted at the Edinburgh Festival. And the political party returns to the Duchess Theatre in the autumn. On the 18th of September, my guest is Dan Jarvis, former paratrooper, served in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, and is now a Labour MP and a Labour Mayor. And on the 2nd of October, because I like to um, mix up the sorts of guests I get on, uh, my guest is Jason Williamson, lead singer of the Sleaford Mods, who, if you've heard them, you will know, are a deeply impassioned a punk band with really funny satirical lyrics uh, and uh, he's a real left-wing firebrand so uh, two very different guests there and more guests to be announced uh, for October, November and December tickets for all those shows uh, you can get at mapford.com um, so anyway, the self-promotion ends now uh, and please enjoy um, the last of these three political party specials recorded at the Edinburgh Festival with Kate Forbes Thank you very much. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the final special recording of the political party right here at the Edinburgh Festival. And I'm delighted uh, who, uh, who my uh, guest is today. Uh, she made her name as the finance secretary uh, under Nicola Sturgeon's leadership and then really forged her reputation in the SNP leadership contest where she came within a whisker of becoming first minister of Scotland. She showed a very different vision of what the SNP could have been uh, and she has certainly got a lot of people talking. Please give a huge welcome to Kate Forbes! Okay. Thanks. Welcome. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. So, it's been, um, it's been a heck of a few months for you. It's been a turbulent year. <laughs> <laughs> have you, have you, has it taken a bit of getting used to? Absolutely. I mean, I've had the most crazy year because having been out of it for about nine months trying to keep a screaming baby alive. I went right into a screaming leadership contest, <laughs> and I'm not sure what part of the maternity leave actually equipped me for the leadership contest, but probably quite a lot. <laughs> and do you feel like, obviously, when you, when you stand for leadership, you're thrust into a spotlight. You're used to it, being an MSP or even being a member of the Cabinet, but it's not the same as being a, a national figure in that way. Did that take a bit of 
getting used to. It does, in positive and negative ways. I think the first time I went round Tesco after uh, I'd launched the bid, you, you walk round with a bit of trepidation, wondering who's going to accost you at the carrots, you know, and... Uh, <laughs> Thankfully, most of it was positive at the time. I guess in your own local town, thankfully, you can expect some, some positivity. But it does. A lot of people will pass you in the street and you can see them doing a double take. And then they come up and say, I think I know you. Were you friends with my daughter? And uh, like, no, I'm a national politician. Like, so there's a bit of humbling in it as well. And obviously that leadership contest, I mean, you came so close... Did you expect, well, firstly, at any point did you think actually you might win? And did you expect it to be that close? I think from the very beginning it was difficult to make predictions because if you looked at any of the early polling, there was only one winner and it was the I don't knows. <laughs> and in a contest like that, it means that it's very difficult to predict where it would go. And of course, there are some who said at the beginning I was, I was the favourite and, and then lost it. But actually, it was pretty neck and neck from the very beginning right through to the end. And even at the very end, I think it was uncertain as to who would win. So, you know, I, I was preparing for both outcomes and felt like it could go either way. And what's it like? Because so few people will ever experience this, where you're on the brink of taking leadership of your party, of your country, and then you are gathered backstage and the results are given to you before you have to go out and then like, listen to them again. <laughs> do you remember anything about that moment? I do. It was um, sort of an enormous sense of finally finding out the result and knowing that the five weeks, which had been pretty arduous, had come to an end. And I was, I was delighted for Hamza. You know, I think he ran... Uh, you know, a good campaign. I think he has many attributes and I was delighted for him. And I also knew how much it meant to him. And I think you can delight in somebody else's happiness. And he was really quite moved by the result. And so you can delight in that, that happiness. Unfortunately, it was just the three of us backstage. So my husband had said, if you've won, put your hair behind your ear as you walk out so he would know whether I'd won or not. And of course, I completely forgot. So I walked out with this big smile, my hair behind my ear, and he thought, oh no. And uh, obviously, false alarm. Oh, man. So in that moment, um, did Hamza congratulate you? Was it, was it all... Oh, it was very... Comradely. There was a, yes, and, and it had been during the contest. I know that some will say it was a, a very bitter contest for viewers, but actually, behind the scenes, we had travelled the length and breadth of the country. You know, our daughters had played together. Uh, his wife and, and my husband had had to drive us across the country and, you know, chat backstage. So it was extremely warm in that sense, and, and he, was, he was very warm too. I guess the reason why it got so much attention is partly because, until now, the SNP has always presented such a united front, an unusually united um, public facade, whereas this is the first time that the SNP's gone through what all the other parties go through, which is, when you have a leadership contest, you do have to have differing views. You do need to say, I, I'm going to do this and you're not, and this candidate isn't as credible as me. So I think it was, uh, I think it was the kind of exotic nature uh, of that that really surprised people. Yeah, and... You know, my, my view was that it was far better to have five weeks of real serious deep debate, meaningful debate, and that is inevitably going to be painful. Painful debate, so that when the successor was chosen, we actually knew as a party what the future held. You know, there's fundamental questions after 16 years in government, after obviously one referendum on independence, but a desire for another referendum. There are fundamental questions. We were at a crossroads. And those questions, I felt, should be answered, because if they weren't asked and answered, then they simmer under the surface forever and a day. Now, you could say that perhaps, with how close it was, some of those questions are still getting asked, but far better to sort of have that robust debate than to brush it under the carpet. And I think members wanted to have that robust debate as well. And that's going to be painful. And do you get a sense amongst the membership that in, in a way they'd become slightly frustrated with the culture of the party? 
I think they felt, and this came up time and time again in the leadership contest, I think they felt disenfranchised. So I think that the way a political party should work, it certainly works in the SNP, is that members, we're ultimately accountable to members. So I'm accountable to, yes, the public, the electorate, but I'm also accountable to my local members. I mean, they knock doors for me, they deliver leaflets for me, they consider motions for conference, and then all the members get together at conference to determine the policy platform. And then when the party wins an election, the government implements that. So we are accountable. And I think there was a sense, and it came up again and again during the leadership contest, that they perhaps felt like they weren't being heard in the same way that they used to. And I think all candidates, myself included, talked about re-empowering members. And do you, do you think perhaps one of the reasons you didn't win is because, in a way, you were talking to the country, and, and you see this in the Labour Party all the time, is that often the candidate that's talking to the country loses the leadership contest, because actually, that stage, you've got to talk to the party first, and perhaps the party wasn't ready for some of the things you were saying. I think that the closeness of the result showed that actually the party was ready, but it's a democratic process. And there were two quite different visions, and as a Democrat, I'm really content that, you know, <laughs> A certain vision won, and that means that the current First Minister has that um, electoral mandate to implement his legislative agenda. I think that's absolutely a given. But I do think that you're right, there was a bit of a disconnect, but not a huge disconnect. If there was a huge disconnect, then the result wouldn't have been so close. But, you know, what are people talking about right now? They're talking about cost of living, they're talking about the challenges that they face, they're talking about wage stagnation, they're talking about you know, the challenges of getting a house. That's what they're talking about and they're less concerned with internal party dilemmas. Many of us, many, of the many people in the electorate care less about parties and party dynamics, they care about what you're going to do with the power that you're given. And do you feel that you know, the timing of these events can be critical, that Humza was the anointed successor of the establishment at the time, the, the Sturgeon wing, and then shortly after he wins, narrowly, Nicola Sturgeon and her husband are arrested. Do you feel that had that arrest taken place before the ballot would have closed, that actually you might have won? I don't think it's as clear-cut as that. I don't think it's as simple as that. Um, obviously, there were a number of events that happened during the contest. For example, resignations, there was the issue around, around membership. But I think... Generally, people accept that most people vote within the first 24 to 48 hours of a contest like that. And I think it's just impossible to say. What I've said previously is that perhaps if the contest had been longer, it would have allowed all of us to really step up to the plate, defend our policy platform and become better acquainted with the very people that were voting. So I think it was more to do with the... Um, the shortness of the campaign. But these hypotheticals are almost impossible to deal with, and I just cannot say. But even the fact that they decided the time frame is a sort of partial stitch-up, isn't it? I, 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 don't, I don't think so. I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think the, the contest was set out quite robustly at the beginning. It was a short contest. I went from a, a standing start literally was actually at toddler groups singing nursery rhymes when uh, the former First Minister resigned. So we went from that straight into trying to think about our policy platform and so on. So I think it, sort of any, any hypothetical that you put to me is very, very difficult to unpack. What I do know is that I trust the voters. I have confidence in the voters and SNP members. They are an intelligent lot. And they knew who they were voting for and what each candidate stood for. And I have confidence that they actually made an informed decision. And I, I think that all the other noise was probably just a distraction. Uh, and some of the things that you stood for, you didn't water down at all. Early on in the campaign, you're asked direct questions about your faith and, and your uh, views as a result of that. And some people thought, well, maybe you should have worded those answers better or differently. Maybe you should have given a more political answer and you didn't. People were, at that point, was completely writing you off and even suggesting that, that you might drop out of the race. Did it occur to you to, to pull out at any point? And do you think, why do you think people effectively underestimated your, your stamina for the contest? Yeah, so 
I'll unpack quite a number of points in that uh, uh, question. Um, the first is that I did have a choice at the beginning, but it wasn't a choice as to how to sort of make answers more palatable or not. It was actually just a question as to whether to be honest or not. And it was early on in the contest, and I thought, if I'm not honest now, then you just prevaricate throughout the contest. Uh, and the second thing I thought was that, again, doing a, out of respect for the members, you know, they need to know what they're voting for. So there was a, there was a question there about uh, respect. Um, I will never, ever, ever not reflect on every answer I give, including in this show, and maybe come to the conclusion that things could have been worded better or more intelligently or more eloquently. So people put it to me that I could have been more sensitive. And so, you know, I take all that kind of feedback on board. But at the time, it felt a real fundamental question as to whether you want to win at all costs or you want to win having been honest and authentic and then put the final decision in the hands of, of the electorate. And just thinking of, of, of some of those views that were sort of on, on gay marriage and abortion and things like that, obviously as, as a result of your faith and member of the Free Church of Scotland, are, are those views more widely held in the SNP than, than perhaps we'd realised? I don't think so, no. But I do think that I was heartened by the backlash to the backlash, <laughs> which was a case of people saying to me, I disagree with you, fundamentally. With every sinew of my being, I disagree with you. But do you know what? I will absolutely and totally respect and protect your right to say these things. Because if we live in a culture where we only accept clones for politicians, clones who we think say the latest fashionable, palatable thing, then what hope does democracy have? Because democracy thrives on disagreement. Disagreement requires at least two people with differing views to get together and be willing to speak to one another. So actually, the lifeblood of our democracy is disagreement. One thing I've always struggled with is I have so much respect for, for people of faith. Uh, and my mum was a nun before she had me, so I grew up in a... Um, that's not why she left. Um, was, um, was, uh, she left and then became a nurse. And, so I grew up going to church and stuff. And, and whenever people um, are critical um, of the Christian faith, which I grew up in, I think... I get why people look at it and, and think that it's bigoted from the outside. But when you're in there, it's not the sort of thing that animates people. But... As an atheist now, the thing that I do slightly struggle with is why are religious beliefs protected in a way that other beliefs aren't? Why, is, why are your beliefs as a result of your faith almost seen as like higher than mine just as a bloke who doesn't believe in God? And I don't think they are. I think actually an element of honesty, like you've just been honest that you're an atheist. And I would put it to you that atheism in itself is a philosophical framework. It's a way by which you determine what is right and wrong. I'm assuming that you will have a sense of why you come to certain conclusions and certain um, other conclusions. Yeah, it's basically whatever There's... Tony Blair says. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, my point exactly. There's no neutrality. You know, it's not a case that on stage here, you're neutral and I'm over here. It's a case that we both come at it with philosophical framework. And without putting words in your mouth, <laughs> I would hazard a guess that some of your philosophical framework might be informed by parents who might have been informed by a religious faith. I don't know. But yep. point is, there's no neutrality. And I think in the public square, we have to just get over the fact that there's no neutrality. What you have a right to do, though, is scrutinise me. And what I have a responsibility to do is to determine how I balance my own philosophical framework with my duty to represent the public. And the public, of course, have many, many different views. So that's not as easy as just saying <laughs> we represent the majority. Sometimes we have to pay heed to the minority as well. So it's, it's a balance. And I think that we have to actually recognise the philosophical framework of each individual. Mine is informed by a faith, yours isn't. They're both of equal value. I guess I'm an atheist just because I sort of accept that basically I'm thick. <laughs> and who am I to sort of decide one way or the other? I want there to be a God, and I, want there I definitely want there to be a heaven. And if there is God, I hope I go. Um, I'll probably settle for limbo. Um, but... I, I, I just, I, the problem is I just don't know. So then how do I decide? 
Well, and of course, I'm not somebody who believes in blind faith. I'm, I, I'd like to think I'm intellectual in the sense that I weigh up evidence and look into things. Um, and my faith was hugely influenced, I've spoken about this before, by growing up in a Hindu-majority country. I lived in India for eight years. Now, obviously, there's, you know, quite a, a number of different faiths, obviously a lot of uh, Muslims as well. But in the area that we were, those we lived with Sikhs. So my faith has been tested, informed, by actually living in a country which has never even pretended to be a Christian country, if you know what I mean. Um, and usually, when I was you know, 10 years old in a little Indian primary school, they'd ask, what's your name and what's your religion? As though those were just the two most normal questions to ask. So I've been informed by that experience as well. But when you think about things like gay marriage and, and abortion, is, do you sometimes think, however noble it is to follow your faith to the letter, in the end, in 2023, those things can, however you know, noble the reason for, for arriving at those conclusions, can still feel to people like bigotry. And how do you then square that with being someone who's effectively open-minded and, and comfortable with the modern world, yet with views that perhaps the majority now would consider not to be of the time? Yeah, and you know, my starting position is that bigotry exists. So prejudice exists and there is, uh, we live in a very unfair, unequal world. So if I take that as read, that bigotry exists. What I tried to square off in the contest was, these are my views and in certain areas there's a, there are votes of conscience. Now you may think that we shouldn't have votes of conscience, but I think in a free and fair and free society we should still have votes of conscience. But these things are law. And so I will uphold the law, defend the law, and it's my duty as a leader of a country to ensure that we progress our work to support and protect minorities in particular. So that's how I tried to get the balance. Uh, now, clearly, some people heard differently, some people were concerned, and that's where I think having a longer conversation about what that really means uh, I think is quite important because I think there is a balance there. Yes, and I, I mean, I, I know that religion isn't the same as politics, but, and I don't want to sound like a total Blairite the whole time, and obviously he's a man of faith anyway, so it's fine. Um, but but it, it, doesn't any institutional set of beliefs have to be relevant to the time in which it exists that a lot of these old rules were, were made a very long time ago, and actually the, the, the principles behind them are different. Effectively, the principles are perhaps the same, but the application has, has to be different. And, and shouldn't even religious institutions move with the times? So I think there's a very dangerous root in your question, which is that we all have to update our views in line with the times. Right, well, who sets the times? You know, this is the fundamental problem at the heart of our politics right now, which is we make law on the basis of what we feel is right. And if I feel it's right and you feel it's wrong, who wins? And surely morality has to be set in something deeper. I'm sure your morality and people here's morality is set in something deeper. You know, I use this analogy, but you know, a murderer feels it's right to murder and the state says, no, it's not. Not on the basis of your feeling, but because we believe it's wrong to take a life. So that is a sort of principle, a moral principle, which should never change with the times, irrespective of who feels it's right and who feels it's wrong. And there have been states that exist who upheld the notion that it was right to take lives. I won't reference them, but you know what I'm talking about. And we say that's wrong. And so I think that legislative morality has got to be based on something that's more fundamental than just, I feel it's right and you feel it's wrong. And if we get into the territory where you feel it's right, I feel it's wrong, then you can't have a debate because as soon as I debate your views, I'm debating with your inner feeling and I'm just shut down. So you actually come to a conclusion of free speech too if you just feel that your morality should be updated with the times. And do you ever sort of... I mean, how often do you sort of reflect on your own views and think... Obviously, you've really been through it this year. You've been asked <laughs> far some questions. Um, do you ever think, have I got this wrong? Is this the right? Should I be a member of the Free Church of Scotland? Is this what it involves? Maybe they haven't got it right. Oh, I am not. Uh, I'm not an apologist for the Free Church <laughs> at all. And uh, 
you know, most of those difficult questions are, are, have been posed multiple times to me in the past. They were posed uh, in the public domain when I stood for election in 2016. One of the first big town halls, I remember, and I shared a stage actually with the former First Minister. And the question about transgender rights was the first question that was posed to me in a room of about 300 people with Nicola Sturgeon on the stage. And I had to answer this question as a 25-year-old new candidate in front of all these people. So it's not the first time I've had to answer these questions. It's perhaps the first time it's taken the attention of the whole of the United Kingdom. But, you know, growing up, I didn't live in a hermitage. I wasn't a hermit. You know, I was at normal local school, you know, where we have conversations. I went to a normal university where we had debates and discussions. I've worked and operated in the workplace where we had these conversations. So it's not the first time I've had to think through what I believe and why. And just thinking about, I mean, you sort of touched on it there about censorship and freedom of speech. Uh, one of the big stories at this festival has been uh, Graham Linehan's uh, performance at Comedy Unleashed and two venues refusing to house him and him having to do it on a podium outside the Scottish Parliament. Why do you think Graham Linehan has had such a difficult time being able to part in a show and Alex Salmond hasn't? You know, I think I, it is remarkable why... Graham Linehan has had such a difficult time. I find this whole thing fascinating. I think that people pick a target and go after that target and they're not content until they've destroyed. But I think it is a like really, really scary time to be a comedian because your, 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 your shows, your art relies in part on causing offence. And some of it I find quite offensive. You know, I was on the stage with an element of trepidation as to where you might go. I'm not I, finished yet. <laughs> I, um, I've heard your jokes before and they're hilarious, but not when you're the butt of them. So you cause offence. And offence, mm. thanks so much, right. you know, offence needs to be caused. And he is a comedian. You know, he's, he's not inciting violence as far as I can see. And I think, you know, there are limits in terms of inciting violence. But he's a comedian making jokes on the current, with the currency of offence. And that needs to be protected. What about the other half of that question, then? Are you slightly surprised at, the, the, at least the partial rehabilitation of Alex Salmond in elements of the mainstream? Well, I think, obviously, he is... I, I've turned on the TV a number of times and he's giving interviews. And he is obviously uh, working to obviously lead a party and to offer views and opinions and a whole host of, of different things. Um, I think right now it speaks to a, a deeper problem, which is perhaps within the indep independence movement, a desire to look for natural leaders that will unite the independence movement. That's not necessarily the answer to your question about the mainstream media, but I think if you look at some of the marches and so on, um, and he's been a, a, a primary speaker, I think there is a desire to look for a leader amongst the independence movement. And I think that should be Hamza Youssef. It should be Hamza Youssef. And I know Hamza is uh, working hard to, to do that, to unite the movement. But that's what's needed. Uh, have you spoken to Hamza much since the uh, election contest? Yeah, we have. Yeah, we had a number of um, early meetings and then have just kept in touch on and off, uh, particularly when he's asked me to do something and I've done it, then we have kept in touch. And what's the nature of what's, like, what's oh, it's really warm, really personable. He's an incredibly personable person. You know, I, I've seen him in situations where there's a really hostile crowd or, you know, a, a hostile voter. And he can just, you know, he's got a winsome, personable, charming way about him, which you'll have seen when he yes. was sitting in the seat, <laughs> um, which means he can persuade people and bring people around to his, his, his way of thinking. And, you know, certainly... I've, got, I've always enjoyed speaking to him. Uh, some people were surprised that after such a close leadership contest, he only offered you the Rural Affairs brief. Did you expect to be offered something a bit more senior? I don't really know what I expected, but I felt like that was where my skills lay. You know, we've been talking about moral issues earlier, <laughs> and uh, finance is nice and uh, amoral. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's, a, it's a role that, you know, you can make everything else happen. <laughs> and 
So that's certainly where my strengths lay. So, so I mean, it, it just given when we talk about effectively a lack of political talent, it does seem odd to have a popular, talented person not in a cabinet. Well, and, and he did offer me a job. You know, he did offer me a job, and, and the offer of any job in cabinet is enormous privilege. It was a really difficult one to accept because it, I felt, would be at odds with my constituency. And ultimately, you know, when all else fails, I'm a constituency representative. So it was a difficult one to accept for the reasons that are well documented in terms of banning fishing and so on. Um, but he was very clear that he would like to have me in cabinet. So he was, he was very warm in that regard, and that was to his credit, I felt, because he, he could have taken a different decision. And obviously, I came to a different conclusion because I just felt it was incompatible. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You clearly have a, a, a very strong moral code that informs uh, your politics um, and your personal behaviour. Do you have any vices at all? Oh, my, plenty. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I assume you're looking for something more profound than just eat a lot of chocolate. Well, chocolates. Yeah, eat a lot of chocolate. Yeah. What's your favourite chocolate bar? Oh, um, probably a lint chocolate. Excellent. Yeah, really creamy. Okay. Yeah. So the one with the sort of sky blue um, trim yeah, on the front. Yeah, uh-huh. But they come in nice. different flavours now. Yeah, so you can get like yeah. honeycomb, white chocolate. I like the 90% dark. Oh, yeah. It's healthy too. It is, yeah, yeah. It's anti inflammatory. Basically, I got into it when <laughs> I, um, I, got, um, I got gout a couple of years ago as a result of my vices. And um, dark chocolate's anti inflammatory. So, lint, that's quite expensive taste. That's quite It hard. is, which is why you've got to rely on, on the guests that come over for dinner bringing it as a gift. <laughs> so, what else? Chocolate? Have you ever smoked? Um, I've not, no. You should try Apart it. Apart from when I was 10 years old and we all thought it was a bright idea to roll up bits of paper, you know, and light the end. Oh, yeah, like oh. bus tickets. Yeah. How did that? Uh, alcohol? Um, I do. I love a glass of red wine. Um, what's your favourite type of red? Oh, my. Probably Shiraz. Oh. I know. Okay. And what would you have that with? Like, what's the sort of oh, ideal? Cheese. Oh, plenty cheese. Yes. Oh, my yeah. God. I mean, there's some meal times that are just dedicated to cheese <laughs> and and uh, do you like blue cheese no not very much no no why not <laughs> it's just got things growing in it <laughs> yeah but they taste nice well i'll take your word for it but um it's got a lot of stuff growing in it so what's your ideal cheese board um just a lot of variety uh probably variations of even something as simple as cheddar the humble cheddar yeah. you know a bit of orkney cheddar nice very nice a bit of stilton yeah Gloucester. Truffle cheeses are a big thing at the moment. You tried those? I've come across that. Yeah, cheese with truffle in. This is not helping with my working class credentials in terms of (laughs) truffle cheese and a glass of wine. But truffle's everywhere now, isn't it? It will. It's in crisps. They're really good. Are they? It's a great... I mean, again, it's not having my working class credentials, but nothing is too good for working class people. And and truffle for everyone is surely (laughs) um, the world we should aspire to live in. Um, So anything else? Do you have... um, any other bad habits? Just horrendous diet. I just have a horrendous diet. I, before I got married and had someone to cook for me, I um, used to basically live off frozen pizza. Uh, I'd come down to Edinburgh for three days and I'd have a big stack of frozen pizza in the freezer. And I mean, it was just one pizza a night. I mean, that's poor form. Always with chilli flakes and balsamic vinegar. 
I love the fact that you customised it to make it just a bit... <laughs> bit so what, what brand? Dr. Otica? Oh, man. No, I, in terms of pizza and balsamic vinegar. Um, pizza. <laughs> pizza, um, a lot of meat. A oh, lot really? Of meat. I, don't know, I don't know about brands, actually. I'd probably just take anything. Okay, so frozen pizza. And, and, but now your husband does the... Cooking. The cooking. He's got a full-time job as well, but he knows that if he is to eat that evening, he will need to cook. <laughs> And um, so what about things like music and film? Would you say oh, you had like, yeah. are you highbrow? No, not particularly. Just a lot of drama. Okay. A lot of drama. Um, a lot of, maybe a little bit of historical drama. And uh, yeah, that's, we've been watching The Last Kingdom. Vikings. Oh, I've not series, seen that. Netflix. Okay. Recently. Yeah, pretty brutal. Okay, so you like bloody stuff, violence. Well, if it's, yeah, historically accurate, violence. <laughs> Do you think, is that part of your, is that you sort of like indulging a, a bit of bloodlust? No, I think it is just, I, I, so I studied history at university, mostly because I'm really nosy. <laughs> and the idea of reading other people's diaries really appealed to me, yeah. even if it was from 200 years ago. So <laughs> trying to understand, you know, what makes people tick, where they're coming from, where they're going. So... Gossip, basically. Basically, yeah, acceptable historical gossip. Gossip, judging other people, slagging them off. (laughs) I mean, we all do it, don't we? I always feel like bad, you know, when people get labelled a gossip, you're like, aren't we all gossips? Who gets told a delicious piece of information and doesn't pass it on? Yeah, absolutely. Particularly if it's false. Yeah. They're always always the best ones. Um, So what music were you into growing up? So we grew up on a mix of Don Williams and Runrig. Okay. <laughs> not take that and boys out. No, not particularly, no. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of country music. I actually think sort of rural highlands, you know, country music's pretty established in the yeah. rural highlands. And that's what we listened to growing up. And so when you were like a teenager and stuff, were you getting into politics then? Yes, uh-huh. So, as you know, I'm a complete weirdo. Came back from India, aged 15. Went to school in Glasgow first of all, and then moved to the Highlands, uh, where my family were all, all, all from. And I think I just found it, uh, I think when you're abroad, you become more Scottish than if you were at home. <laughs> you know, you, you take it to the nth degree. And coming home, we'd always, as a family, believed in independence. You know, it'd been the subject of a lot of debates around the dinner table. And so it seemed quite natural to just get involved with the local SNP. Yeah. And that's what I did. So you're all sat there eating frozen pizza. Yeah. Listening to Run Rig, talking about, <laughs> talking about independence, Pretty and then much. watching really bloody dramas at night. <laughs> um, I can sort of see how it all fits together now. And, and oh, oddly, then you end up in the same party as Pete Wishart from Run Rig. Which is quite remarkable, but not in the same party as Donnie Monroe. Which... <laughs> it's a shame. Um, so, where do you see the independence movement now? Because from the outside, the armchair view would be. Well, basically, it's over. You know, there's a sense of momentum around this thing for a while. Slightly tied up with Nicola Sturgeon as an individual, and now just a number of events, including COVID and Ukraine and everything else, and Sturgeon not being there anymore. Basically, the tide's gone out, and the chance of a second referendum seems a lot further away than it did even a year ago. So I think that independence is still going to happen. I absolutely believe it's going to happen. The question is, when? I think the big shift over the last decade is that we've gone from arguing about the concept of independence as if you have to normalise independence to now independence being normal and people having fairly entrenched views about whether they support it or don't support it. But that is quite a shift to go from even arguing about the authenticity of a concept to now that being taken as read and arguing for whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. I think there has been a massive generational shift as well. But I think it needs to be at the right time. I also have this view that there is a majority to be persuaded about the merits of independence. I think that majority exists. In fact, I'm confident of it. But that majority needs to be persuaded to believe that their interests, as somebody who wants to see Scotland flourish, will be best served through independence. So actually... There's, let's say, 20% who all believe in the same future for Scotland, which is a future in which Scotland flourishes, in which it is wealthy and prosperous, in which there's no poverty. 
But half of them think that can only be delivered within the status quo, and half of them believe it's within independence. But they actually agree on where they want to see Scotland go. And I think those of us that believe in independence need to earn a hearing through respectful dialogue and persuade people for why independence will deliver that. So why do you think Nicola Sturgeon wasn't able to persuade those people? I think a number of, of different reasons. The first is that it was fairly soon after the last referendum. I think, secondly, there was a conveyor belt of challenging situations. I mean, the Brexit referendum was 2016. Yeah. That's within two years of the independence referendum, under two years. Then you had all the noise around Brexit. Then you had the pandemic. Now we're in a cost of living crisis. And I think the public are entitled to say, wait a minute, we are contending with the pandemic right now or we're contending with Brexit. And it doesn't mean that they aren't yet there to be persuaded. I mean, it sounds like in a way you wouldn't want independence right now. I think independence would be the answer on a lot of fronts. So my primary example would be energy. It's energy bills that are most causing concern to householders. And I come from the Highlands. We're producing wind and water energy. And yet, right next door to a hydropower station, people are paying colossal bills. It doesn't add up because the powers, I don't think, have been used by the UK government to tailor that. So I think there is opportunity for Scotland, but there's an act and an art to the persuasion that still needs to happen. And, and I mean, just in a way, you, you lay out those challenges, but also certainly Brexit was a huge opportunity. I mean, that was the moment at which so many people who'd voted no said, this isn't what I signed up for. And, you know, that was a huge conversation at the time. When you think about the last few years, you know, Nicola Sturgeon has been just so popular here. The SNP, even now, is still way more popular than its opponents. Brexit, which broke people's hearts. I, I, in a way, from the outside, I just thought all those things would shift the dial, and they haven't. So what is it about Scottish opinion and why it's settled where it is that means that those things haven't? I, I think there's two answers. One's Brexit-specific and one is more general. In terms of Brexit, Brexit went on forever. <laughs> I mean, you know, the... And the impact, I think, has only become clear in the last year or so, where you've got small and medium-sized businesses that can no longer trade or they're seeing colossal costs on top of uh, goods and services. So the challenges of Brexit, I think, have taken a while to realise because we only left a few years ago. So I think Brexit was a long, a long process. But I, my, when I put my finger on it, what the root of the problem is and what we need to do it's this point around respectful engagement. You have to earn a hearing amongst those who are not yet persuaded. The polls are, let's say, 50% give or take, yeah? I am an absolute believer that there is a majority there to be persuaded. They tell me they haven't been persuaded yet. So instead of asking me the question, which is perfectly right to do, on why they've not been persuaded, I think it's way more important for me to go speak to them why have you not been persuaded? And the answer they generally give is, persuade me, show me, I'm there to be persuaded. You know, I think there's even, dare I say it, people in other political parties in Scotland, in fact, all the political parties in Scotland who could be persuaded about independence. Because, you know, the, the, the principles are there. You know, Labour want to see more equality. Well, we could do that. Tories are forever going on about personal responsibility. <laughs> Let us take responsibility. You know, the, the, the arguments almost write themselves. But you have to earn a hearing. And at the moment, I think it's quite entrenched. Is the flip side also true that there are people in the SNP that perhaps could take or leave independence? I, certainly not my position. Um, and I can't speak for my colleagues. I think it would be unlikely because most of us go through the grief, as it were, of being in politics to deliver a better outcome for our people. So I would hope that we're all united on that point. And you, clearly having respectful, thoughtful debate really means something to you. So how did you feel 
when you saw, it felt like just before Nicola Sturgeon left, she was sort of going back on a lot of the things she'd said, you know, using the next election as a de facto referendum when she said she hadn't done it. That kind of speech outside Holyrood where she's saying, we're the democracy movement and calling people who disagree democracy deniers. It's like a total shift in tone. Given the things that you value, how did you feel when you saw her say those things? Well, I think that anything that risks alienating people from even listening is a problem for us because independence should not be the preserve of a one political party. If you believe in the principle of self-determination, you believe in the principle of self-determination for all voters, even if they vote for other parties. So I think that anything that disrespects or puts down other people's firmly held views doesn't help our cause. And we need to do more at building bridges to them rather than, as it were, blowing them up. And just on the timing of her departure, because at the time it felt like it came out of nowhere and people were saying, oh, is this about self-ID or is it about um, other things? And then, obviously, (laughs) big events happened after that and people said, oh, hang on a second. Are you slightly cynical now about the timing of her leaving? I have no idea, but what I do know is that if I were in her shoes, I would be exhausted. I watched her up close during covid She worked genuinely tirelessly. We would arrive at Cabinet and she would be on the facts and the figures before anybody around that table had informed her. She, I know, cares passionately about people and about serving people. And I think if I were her, the only thing that would have kept me going is that sense of public duty to serve people, which may sound quite boring and old-fashioned, but I think that sense of public duty absolutely motivated her. And she probably got to a point where I think she said it in her own words, why she got to that point. But what I do know is that over, what was it, eight years, she's had some of the toughest situations to deal with, and she kept going but I think a lesser person would have actually thrown in the towel a lot earlier. But then, if she's that tough, couldn't she have withstood a couple more years? I think, too, you have to make a decision, don't you? If you know that there's another election in 2026, you probably want to give a new leader enough time to bed in and uh, build their own profile and their own own programme. And the timings make sense from that perspective. You know, she, she can speak for herself. But I do know, having seen her, that I trust her. And where do your ambitions lie now then? Because obviously you want to be leader of the party, you want to lead the country, but how often do you, you know, how long do you put that off for? (laughs) It's a different way of asking the question. (laughs) Um, I mean, I've been pretty consistent from before the outcome of the contest, which was that it was highly unlikely I'd run again. And that remains my position. I think there's been a bit of, a few headlines over the weekend apparently picking up on me saying never say never, which is funny. I think it must be silly season and there's not enough good news to be talking about. But uh, that's what I said. I'll never say absolutely never, just purely because you can't control circumstances. But I think it is highly unlikely. I set out my stall. People knew who they, what they were voting for. And my job now is I'm moving on. You know, other people might want to rerun contests. I'm not one of them. Uh, it's, it's done, it's uh, delivered, it's democratic. And right now, I'm a bit of a crossroads, I guess, just identifying how I can best serve the party, constituents. Uh, there's another three years until the next election, plenty to be getting on with in the constituency. But there's also what I've called a bit of heavy lifting around policy th- thinking, because I think that after almost 25 years of the Scottish Parliament, actually doing some deep thinking about, well, how do we resolve some of the socio-economic issues that plague our nation? And maybe working collaboratively with think tanks or even across party boundaries <laughs> on some of these issues. And when you say across those then, would you consider not standing for the Scottish Parliament or do you still see yourself in, in Holyrood? I think I would still see myself in, in Holyrood uh, for, yeah, in, after 2026. And talking of working with other parties, obviously the SNP has a deep and special relationship with the Scottish Greens. Um, How comfortable are you with that arrangement? Well, I actually believe in the concept of cooperation and people always seem to forget that I actually started the whole experience of cooperation 
through budget negotiations. <laughs> you know, obviously my predecessor had to do that as well. But I was in a room with the Greens trying to find ways of them, for them to support our budget. You know, and, and knowing where the red lines were, knowing what the compromises were. So cooperation is in the DNA of the Scottish Parliament. You know, you all know that you can't actually technically get a majority. So if you can't have cooperation, then what are you going to have? And I do think with minority government in this day and age, it is absolutely toxic. Uh, just fights for the sake of fights rather than for improving legislation. But it's well documented. I think that every government needs to make sure that its programme is fresh, relevant. And that same goes with the Butte House Agreement. And, you know, ultimately, I said we're answerable to members. So I always think you need to go back to members to check in with where we're going as a government, where we could improve, what we might want to park for a period. And do you get the sense that SNP members are a little bit cheesed off of the arrangement? Well, there's two sort of polls. There's the initial poll, where apparently 95% voted for it, and then there was the leadership contest, which, you know, as was well documented, <laughs> I lost. So I think that there have been two check-in points, but since then, there's been quite a lot of change. Like, the Butte House Agreement has already evolved. You know, some things that were front and centre, like highly protected marine areas, banning fishing, have, are no longer being carried forward. So that's great that you've got a document that can evolve. I don't see any problem with that continuing to evolve, as long as the members are happy with it. So you do believe in evolution? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so that's on the record. Um, but, I mean, is there any part of you that thinks, it's not just about the political parties, but sometimes the individuals, do you think that the SNP brand is compromised by having Patrick Harvey and Lorna Slater effectively seen as part of it? I think if I take my local area as an example, a really rural area, they, my rural constituents are often querying why it feels like perhaps urban-centric environmentalists can have more say about the rural economy than the actual people working in there. So, you know, your farmers, your fishermen, and so on. That, I think, is where the rub is. And, you know, I, th I think I've engaged before with both of them, but you actually have to take the public with you on any front, anything. You know, there is no reaching net zero, for example, unless you take the public with you on some of the more difficult issues. If you can't take them with you, we ain't going to get there. So that requires, again, a respect and not necessarily a sense of, being preached at. <laughs> and what do you make of Just Stop Oil? I think that they are alienating the very public whose behaviour we need to see change. And do you think... Um, is that just something about all protest movements, or do you think there are sort of specific things about Just Stop Oil and Extinction Rebellion that, that annoy people? So I think protest is fundamentally important, but protests that continue to hit, you know, workers those that are struggling to get about their daily life, you know, the cleaner who can't get to work and yet needs to feed her kids. When you start wrecking people's lives in that way, you've lost them as an audience. And once you lose the majority, I honestly think that you can't actually reach your policy agenda. Like, behaviour never changed as a result of being preached at, you know? might be ironic, but <laughs> it never changed on that basis. It changed on careful persuasion where people could see the value of something and knew that you had their interests at heart. I think most people want to do the right thing, but they don't want to see their lives wrecked in the process. Uh, oil is it, it, so fascinating how it changes uh, as a political issue, in Scotland especially, um, from the sort of notorious campaigns of the 70s, even the 2014 independence prospectus. And then now, you know, a party that was like, oil's at the centre of our economic offer, and this is how we would fund an independence country, say we don't want any more oil. Now Rishi Sunak said we're going to drill for oil in the North Sea, and the SNP's against it. Where do you stand on it all? So I think that a just transition needs to have justice at its heart, and that means you can't cut off oil tomorrow. So... That means that you have got to continue to support uh, oil and gas to an extent in order to allow the supply chain to build up for 
alternatives to oil and gas. If you cut it off tomorrow, or even if you cut it off next year, or maybe even in five years' time, you will not have built up the supply chain that can cater for all these new jobs that are going to be created. So all you do is plunge the country into poverty. And that does not serve our people. You know, I care immensely about human beings. I want to see human beings brought out of poverty. I want to see them in well-paid, secure jobs. And yes, the environment needs to be able to flourish in order to, to support human beings. If you plunge the country into poverty first, I think it serves nobody. And to cut oil and gas off too soon serves nobody, particularly at a time of high levels of energy insecurity. But having new drilling... Is that, I can't figure out whether it's... And I'm sure it's partially done as a political move. It's to oh, I'd have thought so. provoke the SNP and, and kind of create so. a row there. But also, energy independence, particularly in an era of Putin, and not just the cost, but just the, 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 the power that that gives individuals to, to cut uh, countries off, um, feels like it's a sensible thing in those regards. So in a way, Rishi Sunak's right to open up these new countries. Well, I think there's a balance because he can't do that without supporting the transition. You have to, I mean, if, if there's going to be new drilling, then it has to be for a purpose, which is to support the transition. If it doesn't support the transition, then we have to be on a journey to a destination. And that destination needs to be energy security and green energy that create well-paid, secure jobs. So at the moment, you know, off Scotland's uh, coastline, we're about to see you know, £25 billion worth of investment in the supply chain, if it works. Huge amounts. The world's largest offshore floating wind. Amazing. Huge. But it won't be built tomorrow. You know, it's probably going to take 10 years to be built. So you can't just switch something off and twiddle your thumbs until the next thing comes on in 10 years' time. It doesn't work that way. You know, you can't ask someone to not take a wage for 10 years. So it's, it's, it's really about this transition and you have to build up that critical mass of the supply chain in terms of alternatives to oil and gas before you, you, you flip the switch. And what about just the politics of protest? Was it, has it ever appealed to you? Did you ever go on a protest as a young person? Um, not particularly, no. <laughs> no, that's all no, right. I, mean, that's, that's... I think most people haven't. Um, if you were advising Just Up Oil or you know, any protest group like that, what would you say if they said to you, look, Kate, we've heard this podcast interview where you said we're really annoying people. Um, how can we get our message across better? I think first I'd say figure out who you should target. Stop standing in the way of buses that are carrying <laughs> ordinary workers to maybe their second job because they have to do two jobs to earn enough to live off. That's the first thing. Don't target workers. And secondly... You know, give us meaningful policies to get behind. And I think people would get behind it. You know, everybody wants to do the right thing. I, but they need to, it needs to work for them. You know, it needs to, it needs to make sense for them. What's your view of what's happening politically now then in, in Scotland and the UK? Because the next election is going to be fascinating. And it looks like, for a number of reasons, Labour are basically back in business. And um, Keir Starmer is popular and is polling well and Labour seem more popular in Scotland. I mean, do you think at the next election Labour could win big here? I think nothing is guaranteed at the moment. So I think between now and then all boils down to whether or not people believe what Labour are promising them and secondly, whether people are excited by what the Scottish Government is doing, the SNP are doing. Because it boils down to, I think, the challenges and the struggles that people are contending with right now. We've gone into detail already on cost of living and the, the, the impact on uh, the bottom line, but also what that means for, for families. And if the Scottish Government... you know, Ham, Hamza has a great opportunity in a few weeks' time with what we call the Programme for Government, beginning of the year, to set out what the Scottish Government's going to do in this coming coming year and I know he's got loads of ideas so if those can break through excite voters to turn out and vote then I don't think there's any guarantees that Labour are going to 
are going to win big. I think the greatest danger is that SNP voters are not excited enough about uh, getting out to vote because of all the distractions. Excite them and they'll get out to vote. I think it's, it, it's challenging for someone who believes in independence to be persuaded by Labour because we've been there before and it didn't necessarily deliver all that SNP voters wanted to see. So if you believe in independence, the natural place, natural way to vote is, is for the SNP. But obviously, independence is on 50%, give or take. And I think if everyone who believes in independence votes SNP, but they've got to be excited. And I think that's why there's a big opportunity in the next few weeks for the new First Minister to really set out his stall, set out his vision, and let the public see who he is, which is a personable, listening individual who believes and has conviction about making Scotland a better place. Uh, uh, Hamza was here just the other week, sat in that very chair, and one thing that he said, you know, and many SNP people have said it, you know, they'll, they'll help anyone who wants to get rid of a Tory government. I just wonder if, with the, the fact that you're socially conservative with a small c, actually you don't see the Tories in the same way that some of your party colleagues do, and, and the sort of constant anti-Tory thing actually might alienate some SNP people. I really struggle with the concept of hating anybody in any party by virtue of the fact that they vote in that way, which may lose me a bit of support. But I believe in self-determination. And I think there's an argument for everyone to arrive at that position. And I think that you cannot win independence. You just can't. I mean, you look at the numbers, you cannot win independence without reaching across party lines. And you know, when there's an independent Scotland, you know, Every party, right wing and smack down the middle, can make their case and see if they make it into government. But until that point, you can't alienate people, you can't be rude to people, and you've got to speak their language to persuade them to vote. I don't know if that answers your question, but... Well, it does, it, partially, because I, I've it, it sensed with some people with the SNP and in other parties that often it's just an anti-Tory thing, and then they've got other views as well, but fundamentally they just want to get rid of the Tories. doesn't feel like that was your starting point in politics. No, I want to get rid of very distant power that doesn't reflect how Scotland votes. It's that tired old concept of the democratic deficit. You look at a map of Scotland and the rest of the UK for the last few elections, totally different colours, totally different voting. And you know what? I want to see England flourish. I'd love to see England flourish and Wales flourish <laughs> and Northern Ireland flourish. I want everyone to flourish. But I happen to think that power is best served as close to the people as possible. So I'd like to see smaller councils, more empowered councils. But I think it's well accepted hopefully by everyone in this room even, that Scotland is a proud, historic nation. You know, it's not the same as a constituency in England. It is a proud, historic nation with its own systems, its own judicial system and its education system and its own history. And I think that that is an obvious nation where maximum power would be best served. So you want to see England flourish. Does that mean you wanted the Lionesses to win? Absolutely. Really? Absolutely. <laughs> oh, it's just wonderful. Do you know, it's really funny, as a little aside. So my little girl's one, years old, one year old, and she just started to walk. Well, it's more like a sort of drunken stagger. <laughs> and um, uh, I think, I don't know if she saw football. She's probably thinking she's too intelligent. But um, she's got this wee ball, and she walk, walks around the living room now, just kicking it. So, I don't know. They've inspired Scottish a new generation. female footballer in the making. <laughs> And would you, would you feel the same way about the men's team? I would, actually. I mean, maybe that's controversial. I do remember going to... I went to university in England, which we don't talk about. That's all right. But um, <laughs> I went to university in England, and I still remember, uh, I think it was Edinburgh Airport, getting on the plane and contemplating whether or not to buy one of those T-shirts that said, I support two teams, you know? You know how the rest of it goes. Yeah. Um, and I decided against it, which probably helped me make friends. And whereabouts in England did you study? Um, well, we don't talk about it, but with Cambridge. <laughs> <laughs> OK, well, that's fairly genteel, Cambridge. Well, very international. Yes, um, but not, not a big footballing no, town. Not that I could recall. Um, Kate, we've come to the end. Just before I let you go, um, one final question. What is more likely in the next ten years? The second coming or a second <laughs> independence referendum? Um, 
Oh, man. <laughs> well, I mean, that is both political and problematic. Um, well, in, and indeed, what's more desirable? Oh, my. <laughs> well, I think in terms... I think they're both have an equal um, <laughs> likelihood of happening. <laughs> but uh, I think probably the second coming could happen at literally any time, you know, in the next hour. <laughs> um, and probably the referendum is going to take a bit more work. Kate, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank Thanks you so very much. much. Uh, before Thank we let Kate Forbes go, uh, please a huge round of applause for everyone at Avalon and the Gilded Balloon who made today possible. Thank you for being such a wonderful crowd. Uh, I'm on at the Pleasance Courtyard every night at 8pm uh, with my stand-up show at Inside Number 10. Uh, but ladies and gentlemen, this has been an absolute pleasure. Please give a huge thank you to Kate Falls! Well, there you go, Kate Forbes. And uh, a lint creamy chocolate bar is... Uh, if you've never had one, you really are missing out. It is very, very decadent chocolate. I think part of the reason I have the dark stuff is I think the creamy, sugary stuff I would find too addictive and would just never stop eating it. Um, but there you go. Another show which has effectively a food pairing menu um, with Angela Rayner, it was the cocktail venom, and with uh, Kate Forbes, it's wine, cheese and chocolate. So um, something for everyone to enjoy. Uh, thanks again to Kate for being such a great guest and to everyone who's come to see either the live political parties recorded in Edinburgh or to see me do my stand-up show. Uh, I always love doing the festival, so thank you to everyone who came. And I'll be bringing my stand-up show on tour next year before then, uh, on the 15th of September, I'm performing it at Leicester Square Theatre. Um, there's a link in the blurb where you can uh, click on and get the tickets. And then uh, the political party restarts at the Duchess Theatre on the 18th of September with Action Man, Dan Jarvis, and on the 2nd of October with the lead singer at the Sleaford Mods, Jason Williamson. I often forget to say this, but please do leave a five-star written review. Share it far and wide on your social media and tell your friends and family about it. And I'll see you next time. ta 